our Father in heaven. Dear Lord God, thank you that we can pray for each other. Your word describes the armor of God and says above all to take up the shield of faith with which you'd be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And and so many other things, Lord, are there. And then at the end it says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would make us that kind of church, which is really the only kind of church. We studied last week, Lord God, in your word in Second Chronicles, how the when Solomon built that house for you, it was above all a house of prayer. And Isaiah said it was a house of prayer for all nations. And we know that the Lord Jesus, when he was on the earth, those times that he went to Jerusalem, he went to the temple, and he was really mad because they had turned the house of prayer, the temple father's house, which should have been a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. It's probably the angriest we ever read about Jesus being Because your people, who are your house, ought to pray. And I pray, Lord God, that we'd pray for each other and that we'd forgive one another and that we'd bear with one another. It's hard to begrudge each other and not forgive each other when we're praying for each other. And I pray, Lord God, that we'd all remember to pray for each other, Lord. Lord, I lift up to you Sandra De La Roca, and I pray, Lord God, that You would bring healing and relief from pain to her back. Guidance and wisdom and strength for dealing with it, Lord, in how she should deal with it in going forward. Bring wisdom and peace to Edgar and Sandra, to everyone in the family. I pray for Juan, Lord God, who was with us recently and is now back out in the West Coast and We pray for guidance and wisdom for him, Lord God, with regards to what he ought now to do next with his life. A very important time. I pray, Lord God, you would guide him and help him as well. Lord, now that we have come to this time of reading your word, and, uh, and I pray, Lord God, that as we read and study, pick up where we left off last week, that you know, like, like, like Isabella so perfectly sang for us before, that we just all seek Christ, Lord God, as we, as we come now to, to read your word. I don't remember exactly how the lyrics went, but it, it just sounded so perfect, Lord, for where we're at right now in this moment, just wanting to approach your word and, and understand the truth of your word. And I pray that you would give us good edification. Strengthen your children here today. And if anyone is here who has not come to faith in Christ, I pray, Lord God, that today might be the day that they come to Jesus in faith and receive that. So many things happen, so many words to describe it, but just receive that forgiveness and blessing of salvation and adoption as your child. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't think I said it, but turn to Matthew chapter 19, please. My wife reminded me of something very important last week after, uh, after I preached. And, uh, and that is that, as you read in, in Matthew 19, you know that I, I try very hard to, uh, um, to compare the different accounts of these things, especially as they appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John seems to have approached the description of Christ's life here on earth from a a little different perspective and wrote his gospel a little bit later. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they really seem to have the the kind of the same approach, the same kind of events, and even use the same words to describe them. And there's different theories as to why that is. That's not the point for today. But but I but I compare them and and I didn't mention this last week, but 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 one of the things that Mark points out that is very important about this this young rich ruler that comes running to Jesus is that when Jesus first challenges him 
and says, keep the commandments. And then the guy says, which ones? And then uh, Jesus lists a bunch of them, right? And the guy says, what? I've kept them all from my youth, right? What do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, so and so. Mark adds this little detail that, that Roberta pointed out to me last week. Mark adds this detail that it says Jesus loved him. You know that, right? I mean, and I, I, it, it is just a great thing because, you know, it's easy to look at that fellow and be hard and even like be even a little resentful. How could somebody profess to have kept every one of those commandments from his youth all the way up to where he was now in his life, you know? But Jesus, I did point out last week that Jesus didn't like directly respond by saying, no, you didn't. Are you serious? Come on. He didn't. No, he says what? It just says that Jesus loved him. And in love, Jesus said, this is verse 21. If you want to look at it, I'll pick up reading there. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, in love, in great love for him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus, Jesus spoke those words in love. His words sent the man away in sorrow which is not something we associate with loving someone. I'm going to say something to you here, and it's going to make you walk away sad. Because remember, the story started with the man running very excitedly to Jesus, right? But Jesus had to say what he needed to say, even though Jesus surely knew it would send him away sad, but Jesus loved him, right? Go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when... The young man heard that saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23. Just read 23-24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That prompts the disciples to ask, who then can be saved? And Jesus to famously say, with men it's impossible, with God all things are possible. I want to start today, and I do this sometimes just for the purpose of making a point. I want to start today by pointing to what Jesus did not say. Because as you go through the first part of it, and I won't review it real long, but as you go through the first part of it, the young man wants to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus tells him, okay, challenges his notion of good, right? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know, we talked about that, the absolute perfect goodness, perfect righteousness of God. You want to earn it? You want to work for it? You want to merit it? Deserve it? Keep the commandments. And we talked about how that should be enough to convict everyone of the fact that they can't earn it, right? List is in verse 18, 19. So then, of course, as we said, the young man says, I have from my youth kept it all. So what do I still lack? This This is something else, right? He's young, so he's got as we would say, his whole life ahead of him. Nobody really knows that. But yes, most likely. And he's rich. We know that. And uh, he's, uh, he's some sort of uh, official person or, or, or some, has some sort of rank or, or something like that. He's a, uh, he's a ruler of some sort. So we know some things about him and everything seems to be going his way. And he wants to add to what he is, eternal life. Right? I want that too. So that's when Jesus tells him to go and sell what he has and give it to the poor. And that makes him sad. Then what you would expect, here you go, in verse 23, 
what you would expect Jesus to say if you follow the, the flow of what Jesus has do, just done, which has unmasked his false concept of goodness and unmasked his self-righteousness, you would expect verse 23 to say, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a self-righteous man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or, because, you know, he had kept all the commandments... It is hard for a religious man to enter into the kingdom. I mean, that would fit with the flow, right? Because this guy had just professed, I've kept all the commandments from my youth. It is hard for a religiously hypocritical man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is hard for someone who is deluded by the notion of their own righteousness and worthiness to enter into the kingdom of heaven. All of those things are true. But it isn't what he says, right? What does he say? He says, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds to it, in case you didn't really get what he was trying to say. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And before you think about it, it, it every uh, there have for years i've been aware of the fact that like people have tried to say this camel entering through a needle has something to do with a camel squeezing through some small um you know opening in a wall or something like that no it, it that that's not really true he literally means camel going through the eye of a needle right because the whole point is he's trying to show that it's absurd ridiculous preposterous impossible which is exactly what the exactly what the uh, disciples deduce from it. So Jesus does not point to the man's self-righteousness. He points to the man's riches and says it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. I found that to be a very interesting shifting of gears. Shifting of direction, maybe better to say. And then I thought about it. And I was thinking a lot this week, and this is yet another one of those great Jesus being Jesus moments where Jesus just perfectly brings out what's important and what's right and what's true. Uh, I th- in a society like ours, and I... I don't think it's unique to ours, but especially like ours. I feel like just stepping back from theology and stepping back from doctrine and just for a moment and just kind of observing naturally, you know, it's in a very organic way what I perceive if I can risk doing that for a moment. The two things that seem to keep people the most from seeking God are they're comfortable with sin and they're comfortable with life in general. I observe that. Very oftentimes when you begin to talk to someone about the Lord, it is very difficult to bring them to the point where they see their need for him. And the reason that often people don't see their need for him is we live in a society that has nailed down, hammered down, pounded into the value system of people that all of the things that Jesus listed here, you know, you shall not murder. Well, I think we all agree that murder is bad, I hope unless it's a baby in somebody's womb, then for some reason we think it's okay. But, uh, but you know, we're very entertained by murder. We watch movies that are violent and, and where there's a lot of salacious violence and killing and things like that, and we don't seem to have any problem with any of that. You shall not commit adultery. We live in a society that basically tells people that sexuality is freedom and sexuality is whatever you feel and nobody has any place to to tell you that you're wrong. Homosexuality is fine. Um, People denying the gender that they were born at and and creating all sorts of 
relationships that are different than just a man and a woman being married to one another, right? I mean, we live in a society that promotes all of this and even puts people down who say anything against it at all. You shall not bear false witness. I mean, lying is like not only not scorned on, it's even a proof. When when someone is clever and is able to manipulate their way through a situation by lying or deceiving or, or cheating somebody, Sometimes we'll even look at that and admire the person, unless it happens to you, of course. But, but we live in a society that has no problem with people lying. You, you watch advertisements and you watch all sorts of ways that, that people try to hook you and take your money away and everything else. And a lot of it's lies, a lot of it's exaggerations. And we live in a society that has no problem with that, accepts that. Honor your father and your mother. We live in a society that has no problem promoting to young people values and uh, assist systems of belief and even with regards to God and the Bible and things like creation and evolution and, and some of the other like social issues that I mentioned, we live in a society that has no problem putting children in a situation where they're learning things that their parents really don't want them to. And so on, and so on, and so on. Not everything about the world is bad. There are people that do good things, and there are a lot of nice things going on. I'm not blind to that. But for the most part, we live in a world that makes people comfortable with their sin. And when people are comfortable with their sin, they don't really see their need for God. And so Jesus really unmasked that with those questions. And then then when he tells the guy, and I just want to make sure you understand this. When he tells the guy, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Why did he tell him to do that? He told him to do that because the guy had professed, I've done everything. Because the whole issue is, the guy says, I want to inherit eternal life, and I've done everything the law has told me to do to do it. So Jesus goes with that. Okay, because you, you know, at, at issue is his concept of good. You want to be good enough to earn eternal life? Then if, if your goodness is going to be the standard by which God grants to you eternal life, then you must do 100% of the time every possible good you can possibly do. Not just keeping the commandments, but even going beyond that, look at your possessions. If you possess a lot, if you possess money, if you possess wealth, and you're living in a world where there are poor people all over the place, then guess what? You have not done all the good that you possibly can. Right? Go do all you want to you want to earn your earn your way with me by being good? Then go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. Right? And the guy goes away sad. And in so doing, Jesus unmasks the second thing that is true about the world. One of the reasons why I think, and this is connected with people being comfortable with their sin, but people have a certain amount of comfort with life that is associated with the money and the possessions and the wealth that is theirs. It makes them comfortable, and they, therefore, because of that comfort, do not see the tragedy and the danger of the situation that they are in facing the judgment of God. And Jesus observes that. It's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Put those two things together and what picture do you have? You have, you have a guy who thinks that he's okay and that he's kept all the commandments, but he can't really see that it's a fallacy that a man could be self-righteous. Contributing to that is the fact that he's rich. Now, let me tell you something. Any like commentary or, or study Bible that you might read and looks at this verse should point out to you correctly that there was a belief that was common then and is still common today. It's even crept into Christianity, and it goes something like this. In fact, you're familiar with the prosperity gospel, right? Do you know what the prosperity gospel is? 
It is a false, satanic invasion of true Christian doctrine that basically says God wants you in this life, in your flesh, to be perfectly healthy and rich and wealthy. Usually attached to that by the clever televangelist is the method which always involves you giving what little you have to him so that he becomes fabulously wealthy, makes himself the poster child for this thing that he is promoting while everybody else gets poor and waits and wonders why it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it has nothing to do with God. That's why it doesn't work. It's just a scheme. But if you can look beyond the scheme and the offense that the scheme is, what is at the root of it? If God is with you, if God is truly your God, you're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy and everything in this life is going to go your way. That is the real fallacy of that whole thing. And that, I think, to some extent, is nothing new. Even in the ancient world, as I pointed out, I I have a MacArthur study Bible, he points it out here, and there are many other preachers that point it out. The fact that someone was rich was seen as a sign that God was with them. And so when Jesus says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, you want to be good? You want to be good enough to inherit, to merit, earn, and deserve eternal life? Go and sell everything you have and give it. Well, wait a minute. Perhaps in the thinking of the guy, that wealth that he had was a sign that God was with him. And that's why he came running to Jesus. Now, again, Jesus is not coming down on the guy. Because it's like it says in Mark, Jesus loved him. Right? Jesus loved him and Jesus needed him to see the fallaciousness of what it was that he was saying. You've kept all the commandments from your youth. You think you can be good enough to earn and merit and deserve eternal life on your own. No, no, no. So Jesus, I think, kind of unmasks that whole idea. I think that then what happens is, as the passage goes on, And this guy goes away sad. And Jesus says the two statements that he says. It's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That statement alone blows out of the water the whole idea that if you're rich, it means that God is with you. Or even the whole whole prosperity gospel thing of today, that God wants you You know, and if if God is truly with you, everything's going to go your way. You know, everything about your life, you can have all of the best here today and now and everything, you know. I mean, aside from the fact that it flies in the face of Jesus saying things like, in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. It flies in the face of like Hebrews chapter 11, pointing out how the saints have always been people who were like outcasts, homeless, in, in the woods, destitute, uh, 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 um, falsely accused, falsely attacked, and everything else, right? As, aside from that, flying right in the face that you have all these people preaching and basically saying, you know, if God is with you, God wants you to be happy, which is really, I guess, at the root of it. And as you know, I've, I've told you many times, I've seen, I have seen all sorts of situations in people's lives go awry because they've adopted that little bit. God, the, what they'll do is they'll make it the standard. God wants me to be happy, and if I'm not happy, then the situation that I'm in must not be from God. That's not true. God wants you to be joyous. God wants you to be at peace, but he wants you to find that joy and peace in him. Sometimes, oftentimes, Always, for all of us at some point in our lives, God wants us to find that joy even though the circumstances of our life are not necessarily happy ones. Christians from day one have been persecuted because of their faith. There are Christians who have lost their lives because of their faith. How do you say when you have a history of people following Jesus and even losing their very lives 
That one of the blessings of the gospel is that everything is going to be going your way. You're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy. And all you have to do is trust God or pray these prayers or send me money or whatever. And how do you do that? What's that about? It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why? Because sometimes what having riches can do, sometimes what having riches can do is they can inadvertently become kind of like a god in place of the true living God. You can slip into serving them. You can slip into lusting for them. You can slip into living for them. You can slip into using them as a way to manipulate your own power over other people. All of this is in the Bible. We'll look at some verses in a minute. But it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because what Jesus is pointing out here is that a rich man can feel validated because he's rich and not realize that you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. It applies to you too. And, even, and just because everything in your material life seems to be going well does not mean that you're any different from everybody else in the world who has lied and has stolen and has committed adultery or lusted in their hearts and dishonored their parents, not loved their neighbors at themselves, as themselves. The law is blind to people in that sense, in that the circumstances of our lives are not any sure sign that everything is necessarily right between us and God. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes the negative circumstances in our life are and can be because we've sinned. Like when we sin, God will allow discipline to come in our lives. God will chasten us because we're his sons. And we have to be humble and sensitive and discerning. Sometimes that can happen. But listen... Do not buy into the notion that because everything is going circumstantially well in a person's life, God must be with them. Or because this person is going through sickness, trial, hardship, God must not be with them. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Right? Go out and take out any ordinary sewing needle. And uh, the way my eyes have gotten, I can't even see any hole in the needle anyway. I have no idea. I don't even know how a piece of thread goes through the eye of a needle, and that's what it's designed for. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, easier than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven because of what the riches do to his view of his own state before God. May I say to you that before I get to the disciples' reaction to this, which is a a reaction concerning salvation and a reaction concerning what lost person can actually truly be converted, born again, and saved, Who, who can really be saved, may I say to you that there's a good amount of advice in the Bible for people who live in a prosperous society like 21st century of America concerning riches. I just want to read a few verses to you, okay? You okay with that? Shake your head, yes. All right, good. Lon Ye. I told Chris that sometime during the sermon today, I was going to say Lon Ye. You have no idea why, but I just did. So there you go. All right, that has nothing to do with anything. Inside joke, thank you for sharing it with me. Now, turn to Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 28. Proverbs 11:28 He who trusts it's just one word one sentence one little verse He who trusts in his riches will fall Sometimes I have to take my glasses off cuz I can't tell if it says fail or fall but either one of them would work He who trusts in his riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like foliage. 
or foliage, some people would say wrong, but it's foliage, right? Yes. So, so look, you get the idea. We don't want to trust in riches because where does trust in riches lead you? It leads you to fall because your riches can't save you and your riches can't deliver you. When you trust in riches, as when you trust in anything, you're making it God. Because the way that we relate to the true living God is by faith. So when you put your trust in anything other than God, you are needing to like step back and be careful about how you're doing that. Look, there is, it's not wrong to trust like, you know, you trust your spouse, you trust your kids, you trust your friends, right? That's kind of in the, in the micro sense of walking day by day, right? You have some trouble going on, you call the police because you trust them. There's a fire somewhere, you call the fire department because you trust them, right? You are sick, you go to the doctor, hopefully you can trust the doctor, Right? There's a certain amount of trust. And maybe with certain people it goes a little farther and maybe not quite as far, whatever. But what it's talking about here is trusting like, like putting your faith in it. Like I'm okay. I have nothing to concern myself with because of my riches. You're destined to fall. You're destined to fall if you put your trust in that. But the righteous, who are the righteous? To understand it properly in the sense of uh, a person being saved, the righteous are those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because we're justified by faith. I think, though, when, Prover- when, when, when the Proverbs were written, they were written less with the theological view and more with the practical view, though. And so when he says the righteous will flourish like foliage, what he's talking about is the person who practically day by day lives righteously in his life. Right? We all fall short. None of us are perfect. Right? But you have on one side the person who trusts in the fact that he's rich, implied, is very loose about how he lives. And on the other side, you have a person maybe who doesn't have riches to put trust in, but he walks in righteousness. Which one's better? According to God, from God's point of view, you're much better off. You're like flourishing foliage if you walk in righteousness. But if you Trust in your riches. It doesn't say you'll immediately fall, but you will. Be careful. What did Chris say before that it was palindrome day today? Why? Because it's 02-02-2020. And like if you reverse that, it's 02-02-2020, right? I think I actually read that it's the first time in 900 years that like the date is, it reads like that. Okay, so here's my palindrome moment for you today. We just, not exactly, but we just read Proverbs 11.28. Now turn to Proverbs 28.11. Not quite the same, but turn there. Proverbs 28.11. Proverbs 28.11. This really, this verse really gets to the heart of what is happening with Jesus and the young rich ruler. Proverbs 28.11, The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. Comparing the two, right? So the rich man, really what it's talking about when it says he's wise in his own eyes, what's it saying? It's saying he's blind, right? In other words, the rich man assumes, assumes that his view of things in life must be correct because God must be with him because he's rich. But the poor man actually searches him out. That is, the, the poor man, without the heart burden of needing or being tempted to trust in riches, has a clearer view of the whole thing and can actually see in the rich person that his trust is in the wrong place. This is what's going on. This is exactly, this, this verse nails what is going on in that young, rich ruler. He can't see. He can't, he actually professed, I have kept all these things from my youth. Again, why did he say that? Is it really true that he never lied? Is it really true that he always honored his parents? No, 
But he assumed, listen, he assumed he had kept all those commandments to a point that satisfied God because he was rich. His riches blinded him to the fact that he was a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace and salvation, just like any poor person would be. You see? Because he assumed God was with him. I don't even know that he was asserting, I've never lied in my life. When he said, I kept those things from my youth, probably what he's thinking is, I must have kept it to a level that is adequate before God, because otherwise... I wouldn't be rich and have everything perfect in my life like this. That's what Proverbs 28.11 says. He's wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. You understand? You understand? Well, you must be poor because you all understand, right? No, just kidding. See how I do that? No. No, that part of it, forget that. All right, let's see a couple of things. You remember what Jesus said about... Jesus said something in the Sermon on the Mount that was very important about riches. Let's leave Proverbs. Go back to Matthew. Go to the Sermon on the Mount, though. Don't go all the way back to 19 yet. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We'll be back in these verses next week because where the the conversation with Jesus and the disciples goes is they talk about how they've left everything and Jesus talks about how they're going to have great reward in heaven. So the idea of laying up treasures in and of itself is not a bad thing. Just be careful where you lay them up. He says, don't lay them up here on earth because they're temporal. They're they're subject to the natural corruption of everything in this life. But what he does, he says, you go right ahead. Be emboldened. Be my guest. Lay up all the treasures in heaven you want because they'll never be taken away. The treasures you lay up in heaven are not like the treasures that people chase after on earth. The treasures you lay up in heaven are not subject to any corruption. Uh, Verse 21 is a powerful verse. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why you need to lay up treasure in heaven because your heart follows your treasure. Do you understand? It's not, it's, it's counterintuitive. You, you would think that you would say, for where your heart is, your treasure will be also. Like, if you set your heart on this, then you'll be putting your treasure, investing in that as well. And there might be some truth to that, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says kind of the opposite. He says, he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where are you going to put your treasure? Put your treasure there, and your heart will follow suit. You, use your, you, you lay up treasures in heaven, and guess where your heart's going to be? Where it's supposed to be, set on the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on there in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I'll talk about that a little more next week. I want to get to verse 24. Verse 24 applies more to what we're talking about today. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, mammon being a word that is basically a synonym for money. Right? So Jesus is saying here, look, there's no in-between. What's your attitude towards wealth and what's your attitude towards riches, your attitude towards money? This young rich ruler, his attitude towards riches was, God must be with me, therefore I must be keeping the law in a way that God is very happy to give me eternal life. Right? But you can't serve God and money, nor can we. Be very careful about that. When you serve money, you're letting it take the place of God. And that's idolatry, which is why elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote, covetousness is what? Idolatry, right? 
When you covet wealth, you're making wealth a god in your life. Uh, Turn to now just a couple more warnings about wealth, but then I'm not, Jesus was not, nor am I implying that wealth is bad. Wealth can be used for good, and I'm going to come to a verse that explains that in a minute, but a couple more verses that issue some important warnings first. Turn to James chapter 5. James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And then the contrasting word in verse 7 to the faithful believers, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the fruit, waiting patiently, etc. In James chapter 5, I think that James chapter 5 is not a a space, a passage of text that's necessarily addressed to believers. I think James, now, maybe raises a bit of a quandary because why would any of the letters of the New Testament be addressed to non-believers, right? Because almost everything that's written in the New Testament, maybe not the gospel accounts, maybe not Acts, Acts, but the, the letters are certainly addressed to believers, right? Well, I think what James is doing here is he's writing about people who oppress them for the sake of their own edification. You know, it's like if, if, I, were to, if, if I knew that we had people in our church here who were going out living their lives honestly before the Lord and they had people who just hated God who were just persecuting the stuff out of them day by day in their lives. And I stood up here and I said, you persecutors, you will, unless you repent, you are going to be accountable for, you know, it, it sounds like I'm talking to them, but I'm preaching generally for the sake of the comfort of the believers who are listening. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? And I believe that's how James 5, 1 through 5 is written. He is writing to address the issue of the fact that these believers would be oppressed and persecuted by rich people. Rich, evil people. Rich oppressors. Not saying that all rich people are evil and not saying that all evil people are rich. But in this particular case, there were people in James's audience who were being abused by people who were not in the Lord and were rich and were over them. And so James writes to show that unless these people repent, they're in trouble when the day of judgment comes. He says, even the wages that have been withheld cry out as a witness themselves and have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, meaning God, and one day he will avenge all of that. And these people need to repent. And then he tells the Christians... The believers right after that. So you be patient and you just hang in there and you just be faithful, right? Now, what can a Christian learn from that? Number one, of course, you can be comforted by the fact that as you walk through your life, if people are economically persecuting you because of your faith, God knows it. God will take care of you. You just endure and you be patient and you be faithful. But number two, also look at this as a believer and say to yourself, I don't want to become like this if I'm a believer in Christ. Look how the Lord feels about those who are rich, have no knowledge of him and reject him and are rich and oppress others. I am going to guard myself. If the Lord, for whatever reason, through my hard work or whatever permits me 
to be rich according to the understanding of what that means in this world, I am not going to let that cause me to become someone who oppresses other people. You understand that? Good. First Timothy chapter 6. Here's really the... Here's really the I, I, for, I'm not going to go to Revelation chapter 3 for time's sake, but in Revelation chapter 3, I'll just tell you, there's the letter to the Laodicean church. You know what that says, right? It says, that's, that's the church where Jesus says to them, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you say that you are rich and have need of nothing. That's addressed to a church. That's Christians not recognizing their need for God in their lives. People at least who profess this, some dispute as to whether it's all Christians, that's just people who aren't really Christians, or there's a mix of some, aside from all of that, the people in the Laodicean church had grown lukewarm and had grown blind. They were actually poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked, even though they were materially rich and said they had need of nothing. That happened in a church. A 2,000-year-old a, a church, not very far removed from Jesus himself. And so Jesus sends them a letter through the Apostle John and says, if you don't repent, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Don't let it happen. See? Now, what did I say? 1 Timothy chapter 6? 1 Timothy 6.10. Good wisdom and good guidance here. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. Well, first verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. How many of you know that? What's the goal of a Christian? It's not to pursue... Listen, don't misunderstand me. You should work hard. You should be a good steward of what God provides. We'll come to some of that in a moment here, right? It's not evil to work and to earn, to be able to take care of your family, to be able to help others, it's not, it's not evil to be wealthy and possess things. It's what it does to your mindset. It's what it does to your attitude. It, what it, it's what it does to your relationship with God and what it does to your relationship to other Christians. The goal is godliness. And godliness with contentment, that's great gain. If you're humble before God, walking with Him and growing in your faith, Learning to live godly in Christ Jesus. Be content in the circumstances of your life. That is what? Great gain. That is great gain, right? It then goes on to say, we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with, with these, we shall be content. But those who desire, look at this, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. I find it amazing that the Lord Jesus, when he taught us to pray, towards the end of the prayer that he, when he was taught, teaching us how to pray, lead me not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here it says what? When you desire to be rich, your own desire is leading you into temptation. The very thing that you are to pray that the Lord leads you out of. Lead me not into temptation, we're supposed to pray. When you allow a yearning and a, and, a, and a desire, a lust for riches into your heart, you are stepping into an area that you are to be praying that the Lord steers you clear from. You're working against God. You're working against the plan of God for a human being. When you, the, the idea of desiring to be rich, it has with it not the ordinary, I want to work hard and make money so I can grow and take care of my family. All that is noble and honest and good, right? But it's this, it's this, 
It's this essential burning desire and lust and craving that I must have more, must have more, must parade it before the whole world, must show everyone my riches, my achievements. It's, it's, it's that. It, you understand the difference? It's not the contented working, and if I'm blessed with a lot, that's great. I can use it for good. That's one thing. What he's talking about here is the person whose passion, drive in life, everything about his life is just, I've got to be rich. It says the person who does that falls into temptation and a snare, a trap, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, which means the same thing. To make the point, he uses two words, destruction and perdition, which are two different words that mean the same thing. In other words, when you are lusting for riches, you're putting yourself on a path to destruction when the Lord teaches us to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Do you understand? Do you understand? What's the goal? Well, back up. Godliness with contentment. The goal of every Christian should be to be godly. Above anything that has to do anything with material, the goal of every Christian should be to be godly. I want to be godly as it pertains to my possessions, as it pertains to wealth, as it pertains to my relationships, as it pertains to the state of my own mind, as it pertains to my own heart, as it pertains to my marriage, as it pertains to my relationship with my children or with my parents or with the society. What I really desire for is to be godly. And when you replace that desire with a desire for riches, you're not going to be godly. (laughs) Instead, you're putting yourself on a path to destruction. And then if you skip ahead to verse 17, look what it says. I like this. I really like the way this ends. Because if you notice verse 16, it ends with the word amen. You see that? See how? So it's almost like verse 16 was the end of the letter. And then verse 17 is, oh, by the way, you know, let's just make sure we say this, right? Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see, it's not that being rich is innately evil. Paul does not condemn it here. Right? Paul had people who were close friends of his, who were very, of very significant means. I think maybe the uh, first one who comes to mind is uh, Philemon, right? who has a letter addressed to him, but Philemon owned a house, Philemon owned slaves, irrespective of what you feel about that. That was a, a different kind of slavery than, than we would think of in American history. Um, but Philemon was definitely some of means, and he used his means to actually show hospitality to the church. And, and, and uh, the Colossian, the church of Colossae, met in his house. And Onesimus was a, a runaway uh, slave who belonged to him, who Paul wrote a letter to Philemon to say, you know what, I'm not going to force you to do this, but if you would, let him go because he's useful to me. But what that shows is Philemon was rich. Philemon was a man of means, and Paul loved him. Paul didn't condemn him. Paul loved him, right? And so here you see what? He says, look, he says, if you're rich in this present age, He tells Timothy, command them, not suggest to them, right? Not try to jostle their conscience a little bit. Command them, do not be haughty. What does it mean to be haughty? High-minded, parading yourself. Look at me! Don't do that with riches and wealth. Don't do that. I am told to command you. (laughs) the apostle paul told timothy command them not to be so consider yourself commanded (laughs) me too command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches don't trust in them we talked about that before but in the living god see when you put your trust in riches it encroaches organically upon your trust in god instead what i love this do good. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works. Ah, if you are blessed by God in your life in whatever capacity he brings it to you to be rich, seize it as an opportunity to fill your life with good works implied utilizing those riches. Use your riches to do good. See, riches aren't evil. You can do a lot of good with money. 
Money can do a lot of good. Of course it can. And if you're rich in this present age, don't be haughty, don't trust in it. Rather, fill your life up with good works. You have a unique you have a unique opportunity to fill your life with good works, which glorifies God. And what is it that you're doing? Look what ver- well, ready to give, willing to share. You know, give. Share if you're rich. Give. Share. Look what you're doing. Exactly what Jesus said to do. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. What did Jesus say? Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where thieves can't break in and steal and the moth and the rust don't corrupt. Right? That you may lay hold. That you may grab onto eternal life. The young rich guy, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to grab on to eternal life. So what do you have here? Timothy is writing, no, Paul is writing to Timothy and telling Timothy to command those in his church who were rich that the way to lay hold on eternal life is, first of all, only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're rich, Use those riches to do good works and lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Ready to give. Ready to share. Share. Give. You understand? There is a special, a special calling. That's how you should see it. If God blesses you with riches and you're in Christ, see it as a calling on your life. See it as a calling on your life to use that for good and for the kingdom of God. Yes? That's what Paul says here. Now back to Matthew for one last word to the the place we were. Matthew 19. Ready? So is Matthew 19, 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. They were astonished. Why Why were they astonished? They were probably astonished for the same reason that the man went away sorrowful. Perhaps they had a little bit in them that, man, God has really blessed this guy. You know, right? So they're astonished because Jesus loved him, but Jesus' words sent him away sad. And they're astonished because Jesus' words seem to imply that there's no hope for him at all. A camel going through the eye of a needle has a better chance. Right? And so out of that astonishment, they ask the great question, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them. And I like that. I like the fact that it puts that little, I like those little nuances in Scripture when it's not just that Jesus answered, but Jesus like looked at him. He looked at him. I don't know, did he pause? Was he facing the other way? Was he walking and he stopped? I don't know, but, but he looked at them. And he says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Listen, hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. May I just suggest to you, not that Christ's words need any enhancement, but may I just point out, it's impossible for anyone to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Rich, poor, old, young, It's impossible for anyone to enter his kingdom but for what Christ did, his grace. Who can enter the kingdom of heaven? Let me tell you who can enter the kingdom of heaven. The person who listens to that list of commandments back in verse 18 and 19 and says, woe is me, I have broken every one of God's commandments. I have no business inheriting eternal life at all. What can I do? I have good news for you. Jesus, in his love, gave his life for your sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he was receiving the penalty that you and I deserved for breaking all of those commands. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And while it is impossible for any sinner to enter the kingdom of God, Christ, by dying for your sins and rising from the dead, makes it possible for you to enter the kingdom of God by humbling yourself, acknowledging your own sin, and believing on him, trusting in him with all of your heart. Abandon your trust and your hope 
abandon any sense of eternal hope in anything in this world. Turn to Jesus in faith. Pray. Receive him. If you receive Jesus, he he becomes your savior. If you receive Jesus, you ready for this? This blew me away this week. If you receive Jesus, his father becomes your father. He is my father. And he will bless me with eternal life. Jed, Fanny, come on back up and let's sing. And we're done.